0: Hello and welcome to Stars, Cells and God, the show where we discuss new discoveries taking place at the frontiers of science that have theological and philosophical implications as well as new scientific discoveries that point to the reality of God's existence. My name is Hugh Ross, I'm here with Jeff Zwerink, and today we're going to be exploring a couple of topics, And uh, but before we get into the discussion, I wanted to encourage you to subscribe to our YouTube channel, Reasons to Believe's YouTube channel so that you can be notified of our new weekly videos. Learn more at Reasons.org or by following us on social media at RTB underscore official. Well, I'm going to talk about something astrophysical, but you're going to talk about something biochemical we're both physicists, but what I like about what you're talking about, Jeff, is you're bringing a physics perspective into biochemistry. So take it away for us.
1: Well, yeah, I am talking about biochemistry, and the, the particular discovery is related to this kinesin-1 molecule, which is a molecule that transports stuff around the cell, and not really kind of going to delve into the biology much at all, but what fascinated me was... Just the idea, if I'm honest, that we are interested in figuring out how to do this, and you know, kind of one of the arguments I'm going to make is that this points to human exceptionalism, because you look at all of the animals out there, and there are some spectacular animals. I mean, you 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 do a lot of photography interested in animals. I I like getting out. uh, One of the things that would happen whenever we would travel on our family vacations is whoever spotted the first wildlife always got a milkshake. Now. Reality that was just an excuse to buy everybody milkshakes, um, but a squirrel would always be the one, right? <laughs> squirrel, no. So it had to be wildlife. So this wasn't like you know cows and stuff that you'd normally see. It had to be a bear or a deer or an elk or something unusual for what was out there. Okay. And so you know, kind of looking for for new, novel animals or stuff that we weren't used to. But in spite, I mean, uh, all the incredible animals that are out there and what they do. What strikes me about this is that we are seem to be we are the only animal on the planet that not only says all right we need to survive but we just go out and look and figure out can we figure it out almost just for the joy of discovering it and you know as, hopefully as i describe what the discovery is and i'm i'm less interested in the discovery and the techniques that were developed to allow the discovery to happen so where you're taking us is only humans actually
0: study biochemistry and astrophysics
1: well yeah i mean we. Animals will do stuff, I mean, you know, I've seen episodes where birds are figuring out how to do locks and to get, but it's always driven by something that's for their survival sake. It's like, how can I get to the food? How can I do this? How can I protect my young? Those sorts of things. At the end of the day, what goes on in the biology of the cell really doesn't have a whole lot to do with our survival. I mean, if we survive for millennia without having any clue what's going on inside the cell or even that cells existed but yet we not only have this capacity or, or interest in it, but we have this capacity to figure out how to do it. And that's what fascinated me about this, because the particular molecule in question is kinesin-1. And again, this is a cartoon picture of it. And you've got these microtubule kind of highways that run throughout the cell. And these kinesin, this kinesin molecule... Uh, actually transport materials along there. and so what it'll do is it'll it'll have a load kind of up at the top there. And just for scale, I think that's about seventeen nanometers up above the microtubule is the size of the load. So these are kind of like semi trucks on highways well, yeah, you get, I mean you could use that analogy. The reason why I hesitate to call a semi truck is because the way we've gone in and tried to figure out what's going on with these things is all right, you've got this molecule, 17 nan- nanometers is not particularly large. How can you get a handle on what's going on with these things? And so one of some of the things they've done are put large molecules on top that they can grab with an optical tweezer and so they can hold the tweezer and then track what's going on with the molecule. But the things they're putting on have sizes of you know 70 to 500 nanometer, or 70 to 500 nanometers. Well, this thing's 17 nanometers high. You put something that size on it, you know, you don't put loads that are huge on top of a semi because the semi no longer works the way it's supposed to. And that's what they found when they did this. They could put these large loads on. They could use the optical tweezers to hold and kind of see what was going on. But you've introduced this huge dis- or, uh, disturbance to the way the molecule operates. And so another pr- approach they took was to put fluorescent molecules onto these, uh, these objects. And so now you could uh, excite them, they would fluoresce, and by tracking, you know, by imaging the fluorescence, you could now figure out where it was. The problem with that, is that as these molecules fluoresce, you need to get a bunch of photons, you know, thousands of photons, uh, because you get this blurry blob of photons. But you can localize the center, and that tells you where the the molecule or the the fluorescent atom or, or uh, compound is. But it took, like I said, thousands of photons to do that, which means that you had to take many many milliseconds to collect that number of photons, hundreds of milliseconds. Well, these things move faster than that. And so what you're doing is getting little snapshots that are blurred over long periods of time. It's kind of like going out into the sky, opening up your camera and just letting it go. You're going to get streaks instead of nice, good pictures of stars. And so this what they're wrestling with is how do we develop a technology or what can we do that allows us to see nanometer size resolution so where where are the elements in the molecule or in this kinesian molecule with sub millisecond temporal resolution and like i said none of the techniques that are around it had, had that capacity and so what they were able to do was uh, somebody came up with this creative technique? It's called min flux, and really what they're doing is looking for what's the minimum flux of photons we can use to figure out where the fluorescent molecule was. And you yeah, know, you're dealing with uh, you know one over or, you know one over the square root of n statistics. The more statistics you have, right. the better your resolution is. And so it's really just collecting photons. And so there's really no way to get around that. So what the the technique that was developed, and this is where the creativity just kind of, I'm like, oh, that is so cool. What they did was said, all right, we've got this fluorescent molecule that we've put on there. We know we can't stimulate it too much or else it's going to quit working, so that also limits how long you can track. We also know that it takes too long to collect enough enough photons from the fluorescent thing to pinpoint it, that that takes too long. So they said, why don't we do this? We're going to take a donut of light and shine it onto the molecule. And if the fluorescent part of the molecule is within the donut, it will not not give off any light. So if it's giving off any light or if we see any fluorescence, we know that it is not at the center of the donut. And so they now can scan across this, figure out where there's no light coming, and they say, "Now we know exactly where the molecule is." So they're looking for the absence of light, exactly, <laughs> yeah. to tell us exactly where it is. And I thought, right. now that is a cool, creative way to get around this problem. And so what they were able to do in doing that, and uh, you know, these are the two papers that talk about it. You know, it's pu- both of them published in Science. Is direct observation of motor protein stepping in living cells using MinFlux and it dissects the unimpeded walking of Kinesin-1.
0: So they do it in a way where they're not actually impeding the motion of the molecule on the microtubule. Exactly.
1: Yeah. So, you know, one, it's, it's no longer we take it outside the cell and, and look at it because now it's not in its environment. We don't put heavy things on top of it, but we can actually just incorporate these fluorescent objects inside the cell, look inside the cell and track where it's walking. That is a phenomenal accomplishment, in my opinion.
0: So, what did they learn about the walking? Well, what they the learned,
1: what they learned is that uh, you know the, the part on the right here is what is showing is a graph of the the distance it has moved versus time, and you can see there's a lot of noise in that. It's right. it's fluctuating around some of that statistical or photon collecting, some of that is you know they're just jitter in the molecule itself. But what you can see is it's kind of taking, you know, 15, 16, 17 nanometer steps every time. And it does so, you know, it takes what, uh, maybe eight or 10 steps there every. Uh, every In uh, every, well, every, every second, it, it does. 10 10 or so steps in there, but you notice you're getting millimeter type resolution there, so you can see How large each step is when the step happens and you can track the motion of the molecule So you're getting sub nanometer resolution or nanometer type resolution sub millisecond time scales on it and You know, so this was really cool that they could track The motion of the molecules.
0: I also noticed that it's not all noise I'm seeing a regular step pattern there. Exactly. Which tells me it's probably bumping into things as it's going along the microtubule.
1: Well, actually what you've got, so if you kind of go to the image on the right, what you've got here, these are the two feet. And so Mm -hmm. if you go back to the previous uh, diagram here, you know, which you've got these two pads on there and the, the... those steps are where one of those pads displaces in steps right, here, right. It, li- it delimits the So you're actually the able
0: there. to see that moving from one part yeah. of the microtubule to the other as it bumps over those molecules. Exactly. That's incredible.
1: And even more than that, what they were able to do is they were able to ta- attach a fluorescent molecule on one side of the kinesin molecule. And their resolution is so good that what they noticed is that with each step, that molecule flips from front to back to front to back to front to back. So it raises this question, is the kinesin just taking a step and a step and a step and a step? So might it be that it's taking a step and when it does, (laughs) the molecule's here. When it takes the step the next way, now the molecule's in the front. Or does it step and, you know, is it pirouetting as it goes down? I mean, you think of what kind of questions we're asking here, that at the nanometer level of molecular motion, is this molecule spinning as it moves along? Is it just taking steps? I mean, this whole scenario just kind of screams, wow, look at the intricacy and the order and the design and the elegance of the cell, for one. But how is it that we are willing and able to invest so much resources to figure out this kind of minuscule obscure fact that in all likelihood once we figure it out that's going to help us build better technologies and do things to benefit humanity but at the end of the day it really doesn't have an iota's worth of relevance to our survival it's something a great luxury that we have, but yet we're willing to invest the time and the energy to do it. And investing that time and energy is rewarding. It's it's almost like we're designed to be able to do this, and you know, that's kind of my point is that we are designed to do this, that this points to human exceptionalism as well as just the inc- intricacy and in design within the cell. Well, I'm wondering if they discuss
0: this in the paper, because I think what would be interesting to me is how does this uh, feature of moving along the microtubule uh, dependent on the load that the kinesin molecule is carrying. I'd be curious, okay, I see this thing that looks like it's doing this. Mm -hmm. That seems to be the best interpretation what we're seeing there, but would it change if the load is different? And what about the speed? Uh, The speed at which it moves along the microtubule, how does that vary with different load features? Mm So I'm presuming that's something that the team is going to investigate in the future, or maybe it's already in their paper.
1: I think what it boils down to is that we didn't have the capacity to even make these measurements until now. Now that we can, can. that's a question we can ask. It was a question we could ask but had no way of addressing. Right. Now we can actually address it. Because, again, all the techniques we used before either required such long time to measure where things were that we lost any of the temporal, you know, we couldn't look at speeds and stuff like that. Or the loads we put on were so onerous that it changed the behavior of the molecule. Now we can actually observe the molecule's behavior in its environment, the way it works, and actually get maybe answers to that question.
0: But as I understand it, this paper is basically looking at the movement of the molecule on the microtubule with what we would
1: call a light load or, or it's it's normal load whatever it would be normally carrying because okay. this is like i said this is operation within the cell there's no longer a, we've had to take it out of the cell put it onto a lab right. environment there's nothing contrived about this this is the kinesin 1 molecule operating in its natural environment
0: but from what i understand what you're telling me is the only load it's carrying are one or two of these
1: phosphorescing uh, molecules, is that correct? I think what it's doing, it's, it's carrying whatever it is. We've just been able to attach a molecule oh, to I it. Oh, I see.
0: So we don't really know the load that it's carrying with any precision. At
1: this point, I, I, I don't know the answer to that. Okay. But yeah. my understanding, as I've read through the paper, is that the kinesin molecule is carrying a load. We figured out how to attach a fluorescent item to, to it so we while it's it. carrying the load.
0: Exactly. exactly. I get yeah. it. Okay. Well, I think this is exciting, Jeff, because, again, I'm thinking if we could actually look at the speed under various load features, this is where we can get some significant practical applications for the macro world.
1: Well, okay, kind of explore that a little bit because I do find this fascinating uh, just in terms of illuminating what's going on inside the cell, but how does how does that translate into macro features that you were talking about there? What are you thinking? Well, I'm
0: thinking, uh, you know, I don't know if you've ever done a steeplechase or a cross-country race. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've got to kind of vary your gait uh, depending what kind of obstacles, what kind of elevation, okay. what kind of speed you want to achieve. I'm also thinking in terms of uh, rail transport, mm-hmm. uh, trucking. Maybe there's something we can learn from here that would make it more energy efficient. Uh, and I'm yeah, always That's amaz- an interesting
1: question. So.
0: I'm always amazed at how the human body seems to be optimally energy efficient when we're moving through terrain, regardless of what the terrain is. And it's like Mm -hmm. it just seems to automatically adapt. And I'm curious, why is our human body uh, so skilled at being able to – it's like we don't even to think about it. I know. I mean, why? I
1: I appreciated that a few years ago. Uh, One of our uh, colleagues or or supporters of Reasons to Believe uh, – Happened to have some tickets to the DARPA uh, robotics demonstration down at the Pomona Fairgrounds, and so he, I, I ended up getting a couple of the tickets, and so I took my family down, and we were watching. The basic idea was there were different teams that uh, they had built a robot that with relatively minimal feedback from the people. So I mean, they got little bits of data, they could make corrections, but this robot had to drive a car that had to navigate through, you know, kind of zigzag through a course and not run into the wall, had to get out of the car, walk over to a door, turn the knob, open the door, walk into the room, go over, turn a valve off, cut a hole in some drywall, walk across some uneven ground and then climb some stairs. I mean, these are things that any five-year-old can, well, outside of maybe driving the car, any five-year-old just kind of intuitively knows how to do all those. You don't have to think about it. But yet building a robot to do that was incredibly difficult because you've got balance issues. You've got where, you know, how do you sense the environment to know where you can step and adjust your foot? And as you said, our our body just does it. Yeah.
0: Now, so was this a bipedal robot or? It was. It was what? a it was a humanoid robot. Yeah, because bipedalism is not not easy.
1: <laughs> that that was kind of what I was walking away from. That right. <laughs> walking away from um, <laughs> <laughs> is that you know we take for granted walking, but that is a very complex task, and we do it without thinking about it. And as you've mentioned, we do it very efficiently. And I I guess I wasn't thinking so much in terms of this as how do we scale it up and do things human level. But now as we're trying to build uh, nanomotors and things like that, we're able to draw insight from what I would argue the designs in nature to be able to build stuff at the nanometer level. Because very often what we do at the macro level, you can't scale down because it just doesn't work and I, you know, I generally tend to see that the other way. The nanometer or the, the micro scale doesn't scale up to the to the large. Well, that's but, what's
0: exciting about this is that uh, this gives us the possibility of developing nanomachines that can go inside our bodies
1: and do repair features at the nanometer level. I find that both encouraging and terrifying <laughs> at the same time because the moment you get them in there being able to get them out may not be so trivial. <laughs> and so I, I could see, yeah, there's great opportunity here, but I could also see there's a lot of risk involved in that. So I'm right. excited and terrified at the same time for that. Well, also the way it is with technology. Uh, fair point, fair yeah. point. So
0: <laughs> well, you—, you So that, uh, I'm good. Why oh, don't okay. you go I'll, Yeah, okay. I'm going to switch gears okay. and basically go into your area of expertise. And uh, it's about moons. And uh, a paper just got published in the Monthly Notices of the Royal Astronomical Society, saying we owe a lot to our moon. Okay. However, as we look at Earth or planet moon systems, we realize far more probable, probabil- far more probable, is that moons orbiting your planet are going to do significant harm. Okay. And so it's basically talking about the catastrophes of a moons orbiting planetary systems. Uh, but the author uh, Bradley Hansen, he begins by pointing out that we owe a lot to our moon. We're we're orbiting a big rock. We're on a big rocky planet, but we're orbited by a gigantic rocky moon, and it's because the Earth Moon system formed as a result of uh, two planets colliding with one another, mm-hmm. leading to the formation of the moon, and uh, you know we're able to thrive here on planet Earth because of the Huge ratio of the moon's mass to our planet's mass it's you know about one point one three percent and so
1: just, so just for scale I mean that that doesn't one one point one percent doesn't sound like a lot I
0: well, know there
1: are larger moons in our solar system, but what makes that special
0: well in terms of the planet or the moon planet mass ratio uh the earth moon system uh, has Uh, An advantage of 53 times over the next known uh, biggest ratio. That's pretty impressive. The next biggest ratio is Titan and Saturn. Okay. Titan is more massive uh, than our planet, uh, but of course Saturn's way bigger. Mm -hmm. But the ratio of Titan's mass to Saturn's mass is 53 times less than the ratio of the moon to planet Earth.
1: So it's not that our moon is larger than – there are other moons larger in our solar system, but they're Mm -hmm. orbiting much larger planets, which kind of makes sense that you get a larger moon because of that. Right,
0: right. But it's because of that high mass ratio that we have a stable rotation axis tilt. Mm -hmm. It's also because of the high mass ratio that we've got tides uh, that make for very abundant life around the continental uh, shelves Mm -hmm. of the world. And also explains why a rotation rate has slowed down to 24 hours a day at the optimal time that the sun has maximum luminosity stability.
1: So what was the, I mean, you say it slowed down. What evidence do we have or why do we think it's slowed down?
0: Well, uh, the collision between the planet Thea and the proto-Earth mm-hmm. that led to the formation of a bigger Earth and the moon that spins up the rotation rate of the proto-Earth. And uh, there's some debate as what that initial rotation rate was, uh, but something like two to three hours a day. Okay. And today it's 24 hours a day.
1: So it slowed down significantly.
0: It slowed down significantly, and the sun contributes to some of that slowing down, but the biggest factor by far is the moon. Mm-hmm. The tidal forces exerted by the moon. And the principle is this, is that the moon being so close to the Earth, That's gravitational pull on the near side of the Earth is quite a bit stronger than the pull on the far side. Mm -hmm. And that acts as a break on the rotation of planet Earth. Uh, But where is. So
1: that's part of why, even though the moon is much less massive, because it's closer, that phenomena is larger for the moon than it is for the sun.
0: Yes, because the sun is so much farther away. So, and, you know, it's it's this inverse square law. So uh, if you're close, it makes a big difference. Mm Uh, and, you know, if we had a rotation rate of 23 hours, which is what it was 150 million years ago, okay. uh, we would have a very different climatic environment than we have today. In what ways? Well, because the planet would be rotating more rapidly, you tend to get more laminar cloud formations, okay. which means you're not going to get an even precipitation fall or an even cloud cover over the whole of the planet.
1: So is it laminar in terms of there are layers where it's going to be or laminar in terms of bands like Jupiter has?
0: Bands like Jupiter. Bands like Jupiter has, Yeah, because okay. there'll, there'll be regions where you got high wind rotations. I mean, you see some of that around Antarctica because mm-hmm. there's no continents to impede the flow. You get a rather a continual laminar uh, flow of okay. wind and ocean currents. Uh, but. Because we have a 24-hour rotation rate, uh, that has been minimized. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, if you go to 25 hours a day, that means it's going to be hotter at 2 p.m. than mm-hmm. it would be if it's 24 hours, and it's going to be colder at 2 a.m. And, so, and that temperature difference uh, would be difficult uh, for not just human beings, but for all life. Right. And so 24 hours a day is optimal for human global civilization. But the amazing thing is the moon slowed down our rotation rate to that optimal level at the same time that the sun's luminosity stability hit its optimal level. They both coincide. And so uh, what Bradley Hansen did is say, you know, this is, these are amazing features mm-hmm. uh, that we have because of this big moon uh, orbiting our rocky planet. But his real interest in most of the paper is saying what would be the case for extra solar planetary mm-hmm, systems right. and saying, we already know if you wanna have a rocky planet where it doesn't lose all of its water and atmosphere because of the you know intense particle radiation of its star when the star is young, you're gonna need a big moon. Okay. The big moon basically means that it has to be close. Mm-hmm. A big moon close to a relatively small rocky planet means you'll get a coupled magnetosphere, which will prevent the sputtering away of water uh, from uh, the uh, planet and its atmosphere.
1: That's a fairly new discovery, too, has it? It's a new discovery. I remember writing about that not not too long ago. Well,
0: Bradley Hansen made note of that, saying, hey, you know, this is a new habitability feature. Mm -hmm. But he says, here's the problem. Uh, Given that we know this is a requirement for life on a planet, what's going to be the normative when you've got a rocky planet orbited by a large moon. Mm -hmm. And so uh, what I've done in an article I'm writing on this is saying, well, what's the situation for our moon? It's spiraling away from the Earth. Mm -hmm. But right now it's spiraling away at about 3.8 centimeters per year. And that's going to continue. And eventually it's going to result because of the moon's tidal forces on the Earth. And not only the moon being tidally locked to the Earth, But the Earth being tidally locked uh, to the moon. Okay. But given the slow rate at which it's receding away from the Earth, we're looking at a long time in the future before that happens. Right. Somewhere between 40 and 50 billion years. Mm -hmm. However, what happens is you get that tidal locking, but there's still some inertia in the outward motion. So the moon actually goes a little bit past uh, that distance where you get the tidal locking. And what happens is, You get a reversal of the movement so instead of the moon going out it now switches directions and moves in okay and if you wait long enough which would be a little more than 55 billion years the moon crashes into the earth and we'd all realize that would be a bad situation for life on planet earth but hey, I, I don't think Earth's
1: going to make it five, 55 billion years well, in the first place. Well, that's a point <laughs> that Bradley makes. He says,
0: long before that happens, the Sun becomes a red giant star and incinerates both the Earth and the Moon. Right. So he says that scenario won't happen. However, he said for extraplanetary systems, extrasolar planetary systems. Uh, you've got a much higher probability, basically it says be- so
1: so this is like a scenario around a red dwarf star where you've got an earth-sized planet where somehow you find a get a, a moon sized moon as well. So in a situation like that where that star is going to be stable for fifty to sixty to eighty billion years, this sort of scenario now starts to play out.
0: Yes, although he says uh, it's highly unlikely that we're looking at 40 to 50 billion years uh, for exoplanetary systems. So he's basically looking at a a random population of planet-moon systems where he got a rocky planet orbited by a big moon. He says, no, that's highly unlikely to start with. Right. You know, because we look at Venus, it doesn't have any moons. Mars has got a couple of tiny ones that it captured. Right. And so Earth is an anomaly. But he says, realizing this is a habitability requirement, let's just simulate a population of uh, these planets colliding mm-hmm. such that you get a rocky planet orbited by a big moon. Right. And he says, what are the most likely scenarios? And he basically points out you get two highly likely scenarios uh, where the moon spirals away from the planet but at a higher rate than what we see for the Earth-Moon system, okay. which means the reversal point happens a lot sooner than 40 to 50
1: billion years. What's a lot sooner? Are we talking 30 billion years? Or are we no, talking? No, we're billion talking
0: years? like uh, something like half a billion, half a billion, okay, four so billion Noticeably, years. Yeah, noticeably, noticeably shorter, but he says even more uh, unlikely uh, is the planet spirals away from the Earth, gets outside the Hill sphere of the Earth, and now becomes uncoupled mm-hmm. uh, from the Earth. Okay. However, uh, it shares the same orbit around the star that the planet does. And so he, then he kind of uh, goes off a little bit future, saying, okay, you got uh, a planet that had a moon that was orbiting it, where right. or the moon now spiraled away far enough or it became decoupled. It was no longer gravitationally right. attached to the planet, but was still gravitationally attached to the star. Right. So he says, what's the possibility or the probability that is this, this moon, decoupled moon and planet, orbit around the star? Uh, that the moon gets perturbed uh, by other planets in the system and winds up crashing into the planet.
1: I would bet it's pretty highly likely.
0: It is. Yes, (laughs) it's highly likely that will happen. Right. And so that's kind of the theme of the paper that he published in the monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society. Yes, uh, we have this incredibly Mm -hmm. uh, fortunate circumstance where we live on a rocky planet orbited by uh, a big... Uh, rocky uh, moon. Mm -hmm. Uh, However, if we look at what we would presume would be a random population of uh, planet-moon systems where the planet is rocky and the moon is big, Mm -hmm. all of which form similar to a collision between Thea and the proto-Earth, it's highly unlikely you're going to get a stable system like the Earth-moon system. Far more probable it'll be unstable. And he says... If you're talking about microbial life that exists for a short period of time, mm-hmm. no big deal. But if you want advanced life, you need a long history of life, and he says the problem is, the likelihood is you're gonna get a collision mm-hmm. of this big rocky moon with a planet long before uh, life is uh, you know, sufficiently mm-hmm. uh, abundant and diverse and uh, enduring on the planet where you can get the equivalent of advanced life. So he says this is another habitability requirement, mm-hmm. at least for advanced life. Right. Uh, that you need a big moon orbiting a rocky planet, where it is stable, and his calculations show uh, that that is a remote possibility. So it's basically another habitability requirement that's been discovered.
1: Yeah, the, I find this discovery interesting for two two reasons. One is there's been a lot of press over the last decade or so, you know, as we found planets around these M dwarf stars, these red dwarf stars, because they tend to have Earth-sized planets. And it's not uncommon to find an Earth-sized planet in in the liquid water habitable zone. And so it's like, oh, wow, here, we're getting close to finding a habitable planet. What strikes me about this discovery or this discussion is that... It really does seem like the moon is a critical feature of a habitable planet and it makes sense why you have more earth-sized planets around these smaller stars because it seems like the larger a star is the larger the planet it makes. Right. Yeah, you, know, you tend to not have any jupiters around these pla- or around these M dwarf stars. Right. Uh, or it's less common I guess I'll say it that way. And so the fact that we've got more earth-like planets that makes sense. But now you ask the question, okay, since you have more Earth-like planets, what are the moons more likely to be like? Well, if, if we just scale our solar system, you know, you got Jupiter or Saturn, you're going to have moons that are 53 times smaller than what our moon is. So the likelihood of getting a moon is dramatically smaller around one of these M-dwarf stars. So that's one thing I find interesting. The other part that I find interesting is that you need a moon but once you get a – or you need a large moon, once you get a large moon, there's this second level of not only do you need a large moon, you need a large moon that is stable. Yes. And that seems like something new that we're just kind of running it's across. It's a brand
0: new – that's what excited me. Nobody mm-hmm. as I know has ever worked on this problem before. Right. Of you know, having a large stable moon around a planet. One thing he did address, he did address the M dwarf issue. Right. Basically saying if you're looking at M dwarf stars, small stars – the probability of getting a planet orbiting, uh, a moon orbiting a planet in liquid water habitable zone is remote because of the intense, I mean, the star is nearby. Mm-hmm. And so it's basically going to uh, destabilize it and pull the moon into the star relatively quickly. So he says, basically, we're talking about... problem, yeah. <laughs> That's another problem, which is why he kind of focused on stars like the sun. Right. Because now you got the planets far enough away, mm-hmm. they're in the liquid water habitable zone, where you now have a possibility of a moon forming and the moon being able to orbit that planet. In fact, uh, what he calculated was it works for planets uh, as close to the star as Venus. Okay. Once you get closer than Venus, forget it, which is why he basically said we have to be looking at stars like the sun. Because with M-dwarf stars, Mm -hmm. if you're Venus's distance away, you're way outside the liquid water habitable zone.
1: Yeah, and I mean, I, I think it's fascinating to find these M-Dwarf stars, but it always seemed like a little bit of a red herring to say, oh, we've got all these Earth-like planets around M-Dwarf stars, because it doesn't seem to account for some of the known—there's er, just a lot of problems that arise for habitability around an M-Dwarf star. I mean, you've got tidal right. locking that happens. And it's like, okay, well, maybe you've got circulation in the atmosphere on the planet— but this, this discussion of the moon really does seem to put a much larger damper on that because, one, you just naively, or I mean, even on first calculations, you don't expect there to be large moons. But even if you do get a large moon, to have it stable with the planet almost makes it unstable with the star, which means you've got to have a larger, st- you know, so there's all these things that really say M dwarfs are interesting, but they're not really, they're, and there's a lot of them, but they're not really the best candidates to look for a habitable well, planet. You know, in reading
0: the the literature on this, uh, Jeff, uh, I was wondering a couple of years ago, why isn't there a consensus amongst astronomers that M-dwarf stars are bad candidates Mm -hmm. for life? There now seems to be that consensus in the literature. People are recognizing, okay, uh, we need to prevent Mm -hmm. the star from sputtering away the atmosphere and the water. Well, if you've got an M-dwarf star... Uh, you've got much more significant radiation when that star is young mm-hmm. than we did do with a star like the sun. Right. And, of course, the planets are closer to the star. Yep. So that's another problem. <laughs> and uh, and you have this incredible flaring activity. Right. And X-ray radiation. So I am encouraged that there now seems to be a recognition in the astrophysical literature and dwarfs are not candidates to have planets on which life exists. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it's kind of disappointing because there's so many M-dwarf stars <laughs> exactly. out there. Lots of Earth-like planets orbiting them. And so this is what got people excited. Hey, uh, but now we're realizing, no, we really need to go up higher and look at stars
1: like the sun. Well, and, and I do think the research into the M-dwarfs is incur- it's it's very important to do. Because one of the things I realized a number of years ago is, you know, they're, they're kind of two competing models of how life Arises on a planet. There's kind of the minimalist, minimalist model. You get these basics, minimal set of criteria and then life arises and then there's you know, I would put RTB. I haven't come up with a good term for it, but maybe a more maximalist model where there's a lot of things that need to happen. And so there's all these stringent criteria You've got the two models and both of them are plausible in a very real sense but really the way to test them is to find scenarios in between Earth and something that's clearly uninhabitable to find as many scenarios in there where it's closer or something looks good. So finding M dwarfs that are in the habitable zone, liquid water habitable zone, with an atmosphere where they might have the right temperature, that's important because if we can now find planets like that and see whether they have life, that gives us data to decide which of those instead of just making calculations, if you will, about what we think.
0: Well, uh, I like what you're saying in this sense that... uh, I see in the astrobiological community, the focus on trying to find places where life can exist, Mm -hmm. just as important, in my opinion, as finding places where life can't exist. I mean, that tells us a lot. Right. And uh, I I would wish that our peers would be more focused on that. It's like, you know, getting a yes answer or a no answer, both answers are important.
1: Well, I, I am sympathetic to that, though, because there are lots of places we thought life couldn't exist on Earth. And then lo and behold, we find life there. And so that's what I think the challenge is, is until we can actually determine whether there's life on a planet or not. And that's just going to—I yeah, mean, you, you and I both know that's just going to require more sensitive telescopes, better instrumentation, all this sort of stuff. So I think it's a a fascinating problem that probably won't be solved in my lifetime. and But I do think even— I, all that to say is that this research on these M dwarfs is really important, even though I don't think they're going to be good candidates for life. Because being able to ascertain whether there's life there or not is a big piece of data that would really weigh in in favor or in detriment yeah, in to the In one sense, uh,
0: I think the evidence is to the point where we can rule out M dwarfs, but coming up with more evidence to rule them out even more definitively, that's important
1: to do. I would agree with the one caveat that if we look at M dwarfs and there's life there, we don't say, ooh, it can't be life because our model said there couldn't be. You know, so that that's why I think the actually making the determination of is there life there is important or not. But I, I agree with I don't think we're disagreeing here.
0: So Yes and I think what uh, you know Bradley Hansen has done here is saying uh things are way more complicated than yeah, we thought. Exactly. And uh Which know, that's what makes it fun. It does. <laughs> But it's also kind of driving home the point that it takes a lot of design and yes. fine tuning in order for life to exist anywhere, including here on planet Earth. Amen. And the fact that it's so abundant here on Earth and so diverse just makes the point all the more uh, clear. Our planet shouldn't have this great abundance and diversity, but somebody wanted it to have great diversity and abundance. Exactly. Okay. Well, thank you for joining us today on Stars, Cells, and God. Join the discussion in the comments below. Remember to like this video and to subscribe for more content. New episodes of Stars, Cells, and God release each Wednesday and are available here on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. Be sure to share this, be sure to share this video with a friend. And remember, the more we know about science, the more reasons we have to believe in Jesus Christ as creator, Lord, and Savior. Thank you.